I invite you to take your Bibles and we are back in the book of Hebrews this morning. If you're just joining us, we are working our way through this book we have for the last few months and we are up to chapter 11. So we are in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. I believe if you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, I believe it's page 1110, if I remember correctly. So Hebrews chapter 11. You can pray as we get started because when you, when you have a pastor that goes on vacation, he comes back a little excited. So I got a lot of... So, all right, so buckle up. <laughs> all right, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is very good to be back in the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, since it's been a couple weeks, I wanted to just remind us of what's going on here in this book. So remember that this book is written to encourage Christians in a time of trial. They're facing challenges left and right, and they're not sure if they can keep going in the ways of Jesus. So the author's message all throughout the book has been kind of twofold. There's a what and a why. So the what is that these followers of Jesus should hold on to their hope in him all the way home. He says that over and over again in many different ways. Hold on. Keep going. Persevere. And the why is because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's, he's better than any other alternative they might be tempted to turn to. So now, that's the book as a whole. But now let's zoom in a little more right here where we are in the book. And as I thought about where we are, here's the picture that I want to paint for you. So imagine being in a football locker room before a big game. Okay, I think maybe a college football. You're in this locker room, and the locker room is where a team gets ready to play. Right? And they, they go over strategy, they look at film, that they're, they're getting ready for the game. But the last thing they do before they take the field is the coach gives the team a pregame speech. He, he kind of just brings all of it. There's no more strategy. He, just, he pulls together the threads of what they've been doing and he just wants to fire them up. He wants to encourage them, to increase their confidence, to say like, hey, here's what we're going to do, and here's why it's going to work, and here's why we're going to win. And so he gets them all fired up, and then after he gets them fired up, they head to the field. But before they get to the field, they walk down a long tunnel. The field's not right off the locker room. There's a long tunnel. And a lot of college football teams now have actually used this tunnel as a way of further encouragement. So now they either have pictures at least and some even have gone an extra mile of having video graphics on the wall and what these pictures and videos on the wall the tunnel are are of great players from the past other players from that team saying hey look back at these highlights look back at these snapshots now they're not showing full games or everything about the player they're just showing moments glimpses and they're meant to stir them up and be like yeah remember how they played Remember what he did? Remember how that team was? Remember what it means to play for this team? So they're walking through this tunnel and they're seeing examples of what it looks like 
to play the game the way they want to play. So they've gotten the pregame speech, what they need to do. They walk down a tunnel where they see examples of this is what it looks like. And then they get to the field and the coach just lets them loose and says, now let's go do it. Right? Anybody ready to go play? Okay, I didn't miss my calling as a coach. Good. Well, that's what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. The, the charge or the pregame speech, if you will, was back at the end of chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles open, look back there. Chapter 10, starting up in verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So that's the speech. That's him taking all the theology he's been unpacking for the first 10 chapters and saying, we got to hold on, team. We got to keep going. You got a great reward. It's coming. Just hang on, live by faith, persevere. And then we move into the tunnel of chapter 11. So we're out of the locker room and we're walking, as we walk through this chapter, we're walking past pictures of saints from the past on the walls, showing us highlights of faith from days gone by. And these pictures are meant to inspire faith in us, to encourage us to keep trusting, keep going in our faith in Jesus. And then after these saints have strengthened our faith in Jesus, as we've looked at their example, we come charging out of the tunnel in chapter 12 with the pictures of the faithful fixed in our mind. And as we come out of the tunnel, we hear the voice of our coach shout, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's what's happening, okay? So we're not ready to play the game yet. We're still in the tunnel. But that's where we're at this week, okay? So this week we're walking through the tunnel and we're looking at these pictures of faith meant to encourage our hearts. We're going to look at seven pictures very quickly this morning. And there's two things I want you to notice about all these pictures before we jump in. The first is that these are pictures of what faith looks like in times of crisis. These are not examples of faith when someone was having the best day of their life, sitting quietly at home in their favorite chair with a cup of warm coffee, or in their pew at church singing their favorite songs when life just couldn't get any better. These are pictures of faith when life is in turmoil, when things are scary and hard and confusing. Just scan your eyes back over the scenes. Think about some of these. Deciding whether to, you should risk your life to protect your baby. Wrestling with whether you should throw away the good life you have because you believe God offers a better one. Facing the threat of a terrifying night where thousands of people will mysteriously lose their lives. Standing on the shores of the sea while water is doing something it's not supposed to do and now you're supposed to walk right through the middle of it. These are scary, confusing, hard times. This is faith for the hard times. So here's what I want you to do this morning. As you listen, as we go through these scenes, I want you to keep your own hard times in mind. Now, the reality is none of you is facing an angry pharaoh or walking through a parted sea. But most of us in this room have something hard in our lives this morning. And if you don't, you can take my word, you will soon. That's how life is. So as we look at these saints of days gone by, I want you to be listening for what does faith look like in these hard times? What would it look like in my hard time? Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing we need to see about these pictures is that in all of them, there's a choice to be made. There's a choice. Will I hide the spies or will I play it safe? Will I put this blood on my door or will I trust that nothing's really going to happen if I don't? Will I keep marching around a city or trust my own strategy? Over and over. This is important to see because it shows us that what we believe shapes 
what we choose. One sentence I read as I was preparing this week just got stuck in my mind and has been there all week. One of the commentators, a guy named Richard Phillips, said this. He said, faith makes itself known through its choices. Faith makes itself known through its choices. In other words, what you believe, what you really believe, I'm not talking about what you say you believe, I'm talking about what you in your heart believe is shown by what we choose. Especially in the hard moments of life. That's when what you really believe comes out. Because now there's no more, there's no more margin for just paying lip service. This is a hard moment. I got to go by what I really believe. So life is a series of choices, isn't it? It's just one after another. Some big, lots of little ones. We're constantly choosing where to work, who to marry, what to buy, whether I should come to church this morning, what should I say in that conversation, should I say anything, on and on and on. And what we choose is shaped by what we cherish. We all choose what lines up with what we desire and what we value. All of us. And we'll see that in these verses as well. So this morning we're going to look at faith in the hard times and what we'll see is that faith, we'll see what faith chooses and what faith cherishes. And we're going to see that by looking at our seven pictures on the wall of our tunnel. Okay, so let's jump in. The first picture on our wall as we're heading out of the locker room, we come to a picture of Moses' parents. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, what's going on here? Well, back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the king of Egypt started to get a little concerned that these Israelite slaves were getting to be a little too many. And he was afraid that if they got to be too many, they might grow strong. And if a war broke out, they'd side with the enemies and they'd escape slavery. So what he did is he commanded that all Hebrew baby boys were to be killed. All of them. If you disobeyed the king and kept a baby boy alive, you as the parents were taking your own life into your own hands. The choice parents of sons faced was, would you risk your life to save your child or would you let your child die to save yourself? Those were the only two options. So imagine being Moses' parents. You find out you're pregnant. You're thrilled. You're, you're, I mean, you're, you're excited. We're going to have a, have a child. And then almost immediately, you move from intense delight to intense terror. What if it's a boy? And so you begin to talk and think, well, what are we going to do if it's a son, you cry and pray and cry and pray. There's no easy answer to your dilemma. And then the baby's born and it's a son. Now there's a choice to be made. What do they choose? By faith, they chose to take a risk for the sake of love. They keep the baby and hide him for three months, it says, even though doing so puts them squarely in harm's way if people were to find out. So what guided them to make this hard choice? What, what tipped them in that direction? It says they did it by faith. In other words, underneath all their thinking about this factor and that factor and this, how does this all go together? Underneath all their thinking was a firm trust in the God who gave them this child. There's a lot they didn't know. There's a lot, there was a lot of unknowns as they tried to play out the scenarios. But what they did know was their God. They trusted that his protection was more real to them than the king's threats. And that faith freed them to make a hard choice driven by love for the child and not by fear of the, of the danger they faced. Faith compelled them to put themselves at risk for the sake of their son. And this is one way that faith shapes our choices. Faith does not let fear for ourselves 
stop us from doing what's loving for others. Faith does not let fear for ourselves stop us from doing what's loving for others. It's willing to put ourselves in harm's way in order to do good to others. That's one way faith shapes our choices. That's the first picture on our wall. Now as we keep moving, we come to the next picture and we have Moses, not a little baby, but all grown up. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. All right, so we're going to spend probably the most time on this one. So just so you know that, they're not going to be equal. Because there's a lot here. There's, so, there's riches in this passage. So let's talk about the backstory again. So we need to understand that. So you know the story probably. If after Moses was hidden for three months, they put him in a basket in the river. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And she adopts him and raises him in her house. And by growing up in Pharaoh's house, Moses gets the best education. I mean, the best. It's like Ivy League schools, right? He... He has access and connections to powerful people. Like he's friends with the kids of the governor and, and his, his other playmates' dad is in charge of the finances and he knows all the people. Not only that, he possesses the money and resources to enjoy life any way that he wants to. He was set up for success. But Moses had also maintained a relationship with his birth family. And the Israelite people. And through that, he had been taught about the true God. And about the promises that he'd made to his people. So Moses grew up kind of living in two worlds. Enjoying the life of an Egyptian. While wanting the promises of God. But one day, he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite. This powerful person who's in the influential class beating an Israelite and he had a choice to make and he doesn't get to go home and think about it pray about it it's in the moment he had to make a choice as an Egyptian does Moses do nothing and let this Israelite get beaten and possibly killed but that would keep Moses safe and comfortable or as an Israelite does Moses step in to defend his fellow Israelite knowing the second he did that, it would put him at odds with the powerful Egyptian culture all around him. The real issue here was, where does Moses' deepest loyalties lie? Which group does he really belong to? He could no longer be both an Egyptian and an Israelite. So which was he? Better question, who was he? But the choice wasn't that simple. Because Moses isn't choosing between two equal groups of people, right? On one hand, if he chooses to stick with the Egyptians, there's some amazing perks. He gets to stay on this fast track to success. He'd be accepted as part of the in crowd. Like, he'd be one of them that could look down their noses at those lowly Israelites. He's, he's the in crowd. He'd have power and money and privileges and comforts Life would be easy, relatively speaking, and good. And if he stuck with Egypt, it says that he could enjoy the pleasures of sin. And this, there's a really important nugget of truth tucked in here that we need to see. It says that he had to choose whether or not to enjoy sin. The truth here is sin can be enjoyable. Right? Sin can offer us pleasure. The Bible doesn't deny that. Sin can often feel really good. That's why we do it. And we need to face that. None of us sins because we have to. We sin because we want to. Sin offers us pleasure. It holds out a promise saying, this will be good. You'll like this. It'll feel right. It'll feel comfortable. It'll feel safe. It'll, it'll put you where you want to be, give you what you want, and if Moses wanted those fleeting pleasures, they were all his. 
if he chose the treasures of Egypt. Now on the other hand, if he walked away from all that to be aligned with or identified with the people of God, he's choosing a life of hardship. The people of God had no power, no money, no rights, no protection. He'd be looked down on by the Egyptians. It doesn't matter his background. It doesn't matter his education. As soon as he was identified as a part of the people of God, he's one of those. And he would face constant mistreatment, it says, as a lowly Israelite. Now, if somebody held out that decision to you, at first glance, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Hmm. Pleasures of sin and treasures of Egypt or mistreatment, suffering, and reproach. But what does it say Moses chose? Verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Why in the world would anyone choose that? I love how the Bible frames it like God is framing it here. He doesn't just say, he says, pleasures and treasures, suffering. But suffering's not all of it. So the question we need to ask is, why is Moses choosing the hard thing? Why is he choosing mistreatment? Is this just about self-denial? Is that the moral of the story here? Did Moses say no to the joy and pleasure that he wanted so that he could just do the right thing? And choose God instead. Say, no, I would really love that, but I'm going to do the thing I don't want because it's the right thing. Or better yet, the real question for us, where we live, what we need to know from this is, does choosing God mean that I need to say no to joy and pleasure and treasure? Is that what it means to be a Christian? Is fundamentally being a Christian saying no to all the good stuff just so I can be a good person. Is that what it's about? To which Moses in our passage says, absolutely not. Why did he choose God over Egypt? He's not saying no to pleasure. He's saying yes to a better pleasure. He held them up and said, yeah, that might look good, but oh, compared to that, that's garbage. Kind of like Paul would say, right? Consider the loss of all things. Compare them as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. When we become a Christian, it's not because we turn our back on good things to choose God things. We turn our back on mediocre things to choose amazing things, great things, glorious things. Moses is doing what he does because it says he considered what he had in God greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He still wanted wealth. You need to see that. Because we're all, our hearts are wired to go for value, to go for what we think is precious and worthy. And so he says, yeah, I'm still doing that. I just understand what's really worth it. So here's where we come to the heart of what faith cherishes. That word considered, it has kind of this connotation of, of uh, calculation of doing some value assessment. And when we make choices, we're always doing calculations. Our hearts are like little calculators. We just constantly look at big, I'm not talking about just big things, but everything. What you're going to eat for lunch. Whether or not you're going to go to that thing on Tuesday night. You're constantly looking at the things and you think about what do we want or value. And then we think about what it will cost to have us. So you may not think that explicitly, but that calculator is working in your heart. Saying, okay, I like this, and it's going to cost me that. Is it worth it? And we all choose what we cherish most. So if I cherish security most, I'll always choose whatever the safest option is. If I cherish money and possessions, I'll always choose whatever lets me get or keep the most money. The only way you'll ever choose something hard is if you think what comes with that hard choice is worth it. That what you get from that hard choice is worth more than what it costs you. So think about common examples. Some of you might be working a job that, you, if you're honest, you don't really like. Well, why are you doing it? Because you cherish the fact that it offers you a paycheck. 
And so you're willing to do the job, even though it's not something you would choose to do, because you know that I, I want and need to support my family. Some of you, I wish I could say some of us, exercise. Because, because you love it? If you do, I don't understand you. But some of you exercise, why? Because you cherish the benefits it provides your health. So you're willing to do something hard, something that in a vacuum you wouldn't choose, but you want what's on the backside of it. You say, that's worth it. Well, that's what Moses is doing here. He's doing calculations in his heart. He's looking at all that sin offered. And while it offered all kinds of pleasures to enjoy, he's not denying that. He's like, yeah, there's a lot of pleasures. But he also realized there's a problem with those pleasures. And it's in the text. The problem is that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. He doesn't deny that they're real, but he says, yeah, they're real, but they're fleeting. They don't last. They're temporary. And they're not just fleeting, they're fatal. The pleasures of sin feel good in the moment, but they'll kill us. They're like ice cream filled with poison. Man, it tastes good going down. So you, just, you want more and more and more. But as soon as it gets inside you, it's destroying everything it touches. That's the way sin is. We often picture sin as this nasty, horrible stuff. I would never do that. No, no, no. Sin is the stuff that like, in your flesh you want to do. It tastes good like the ice cream, but it's poisonous. It's toxic. And the treasures of Egypt, Moses is looking at those saying, yeah, there's a lot there. But you know what? They don't last either. Moses was after better pleasures and better treasure. So as he did his calculations of what would, what would give him the fullest and longest lasting pleasures and what would give him the most valuable treasure, he chooses God. Why? Because he considered suffering for Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Again, he's not turning his back on wealth. He's running hard after it and says, yeah, I want to be wealthy. That stuff doesn't compare to that. He was looking to the reward. Moses says, you can offer me all this world has to offer, and I still choose God. Because he's better. He's more valuable. His love endures forever. His mercies never come to an end. The riches of his grace are immeasurable. He is the reward I'm after. He's so much better that I would gladly endure suffering for the sake of his name and still count it as better. He says, you, that's, that's the testimony of faith throughout the ages, is that God's people say, do to me what you will, as long as I get Jesus. Persecute me, stone me, speak evil of me. You know why? Because my master said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on account of me, for so they did the prophets before you. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Do with me what you will. Paul says, stone me. I'm going to get up and keep talking about Jesus. The apostles are dragged before the Sanhedrin and they are beaten. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Are we just gluttons for punishment? No, we're gluttons for treasure. And we found it. So the question is, how much is Jesus worth to you? I'm not asking, do you believe in a Sunday school kind of way? But I mean, is he your greatest treasure? Would you, like the man who finds a treasure hidden in the field, would you gladly give up everything else and say, as long as I get him? You can take that. You can take that. You can take that. Just don't take Jesus. Is Jesus worth more to you than the fleeting pleasures you get from sin? Are there other treasures in your life that you're not willing to give up? Are you still trying to live in two worlds the way Moses was? Enjoying life as an Egyptian while still wanting the promises God offers his people. You can't live in Egypt and get the promises of God. No one can serve two masters. Which will you choose? Moses shows us that faith is not satisfied with temporary pleasures. It wants the better reward that's coming. 
As your pastor, I need you to hear me say, I am never, ever going to tell you to tamp down your desires or expectations or hopes or wishes or ambitions. My hope is that all I ever tell you is turn them up. Want more. Don't settle. Don't settle for the best car or the best job or the best house or the best life or the best vacation. Don't settle for that when you can have Jesus. I don't want you to stop wanting. I want you to want so much more that you stop making mud pies in the slums and you say, I want a holiday at the sea. That's what Moses is telling us here. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Faith chooses present suffering with Christ because it cherishes the reward of future joy and pleasure with Christ. All right, let's keep going down our tunnel. I said that was the longest one. Our third picture then is Moses on the run. Look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So after Moses planted his flag and aligns himself with the people of God, saying, I'm choosing suffering as part of them over the pleasures of Egypt, it says he left. Now I'm not going to say a whole lot about this one. I just want to make two quick observations. One, it says that Moses' faith made him unafraid of the anger of the king. In other words, fear of what others might do to him didn't guide Moses' choice. Instead, faith in what God would do for him did. Where do you think Moses learned to trust God like that? Where did he see a kind of faith that's unafraid of the consequences it faces from those in authority and instead relies on God's protection and provision? Isn't this the same kind of faith we saw in verse 23 in his parents? A faith that trusts God and doesn't fear the king? So the question this leaves us with is, parents, are you showing your kids what it looks like to trust God even when it's scary? Are you modeling the way Moses' parents did? Saying, honey, this is, I don't know the answers. And some bad things may or may not happen. We don't know. But we're going to trust God as a family. And I want you to, to see in my life that it's not just songs I sing on Sunday. It's how I live Monday through Saturday. Parents, are we handing that kind of faith down? Second, notice that Moses, it says, it says Moses endured, endured. He kept going. He persevered. Now, most likely this means that he endured in the path that he chose back in verse 25. Back when he chose mistreatment with the people of God instead of the treasures of Egypt, here he endures in that path. So instead of staying in Egypt and trying to like scramble to regain his old life, thinking, okay, how can I explain this? How can I cover this up? How can I get back what I had? He says, no, he kept going in the path as part of God's people. And what kept him going down this path? He saw him who was invisible. In other words, he looked at his life and he saw the hand of God at work all around him, even though he couldn't see God. He could see God in everything, though he couldn't see God, because he saw with the eyes of faith. He looked not to the things that are seen, but that are unseen. And friends, this is the same way we keep going in faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the same Jesus that First Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, like Moses, we live by faith, enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Okay, let's keep going to our next picture. Next picture we come to, there's this picture on the wall of a bloody doorpost. What's this about? Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay, so you know this story. After nine plagues in Egypt, God warns Moses that he's about to sin one more. 
And this one's going to be the capstone. He's going to pass through the land and kill the firstborn of every family. But God also tells Moses how to be saved from that coming judgment. God tells him what you need to do is you need to kill a lamb without blemish. And then you take the blood of that lamb without blemish and you put it over the doorpost of your house. And God says, when I go through the land and I see the blood, I will pass over that house. And those inside will be safe. Now, in other words, again, we know this story, so it's tempting to just put it in a different, put it in a Sunday school category and not actually think about what was that like? (laughs) Moses is warned about a judgment that he'd never seen and probably couldn't imagine. Put yourself in his shoes. If, if I tell you that, hey, God told me that there's going to be this devastating judgment and the only way to be saved is if you do this really strange thing. Like God's going to go throughout all the world and he's just going to start, like people are just going to start dying tonight. And the only way you can avoid it is if you do this thing that's going to make you look really weird and stand out and it's very public you got to put something on your front door. you got to put this blood of an animal. What are you thinking? This is not just in the quiet of your heart. What do you really believe? This is public. This is taking action and saying like, I believe what God said is going to happen will happen. I believe his judgment really will come. And if I don't do this, I will incur that judgment. And I believe that if I do this thing that I don't understand how that works, I will be saved. Moses could have easily thought, there's no way something like that's going to happen. Really? I mean, a bunch of people just die like that? That's, that seems unlikely. I've never heard of that happening before. Or he could have thought, you know, there probably is. God, God, God's been doing some crazy things. I bet he's going to keep doing it. But I bet if I just stay inside tonight and I just stay out of the way, I bet I'll be fine. That makes more sense to me. The blood stuff seems a bit much. I don't really understand how that's going to help. I think as long as we just tell people, hey, stay inside, stay quiet. There's going to be danger in the streets, but you'll be fine in your house. I think then we'll be okay. The problem is that everyone who thought that way was destroyed. Everyone who thought that it made more sense to do it their way, or they were going to stick to what they knew, or or that's just too unbelievable— They were destroyed. And we find ourselves in the same place as Moses. God has warned us of a coming judgment against sin. He's told us, just like he told Moses, here's what's happening. We know it's in our Bibles. One day all sin will be punished and sinners will be destroyed. That's not up for debate. And just like that night, people could have said, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not convinced. God didn't care whether they were convinced. He still did it. So whether you're here and you say, I don't know, that seems outlandish to me. Friends, he will still do it. It does not depend upon you believing it will happen for it to happen. But here's the thing, that God in his mercy has not only told us of the judgment that's coming, he said, but there's a way out. There's a way to be saved. Here's what you need to do. I'm giving you a way of salvation. I've sent my son to be a lamb without blemish. To live a perfectly spotless and sinless life. So when he died, he came to be our Passover lamb. He died in your place so that when you take refuge under his blood, we are saved. And friends, God's judgment really is coming and there really is no other way to be saved than to take refuge under the blood. Just like that night, there was no other way to be saved than get in your house, put the blood of the lamb on the door. There is no other way to be saved than to take refuge in Jesus. You cannot try hard enough. You cannot be good enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. The only way we are saved is to take refuge under the blood because when God sees the blood, he passes over us. Everyone who's not hiding themselves under his blood will be destroyed. And so we face the same choice that Moses faced that night. We've heard the warning. You know it. Will you believe God's warning and trust his way of salvation? 
Will you choose to act? Moses didn't simply say, I believe that, God. That sounds really, yeah, I get it. That sounds believe. He had to do something. He had to act and choose by taking refuge in the blood of the lamb. He had to actually put the blood there and say, I'm putting it all in. Will you choose to act and take refuge in Jesus? Only two choices. Yes or no. If you say, well, I, just, I just don't think I'm going to choose yet. Not choosing is making a choice. For everyone that night who sat outside thinking, I just don't know what to make of this. I'm just not ready to say whether I should go in or not. That was a choice. Do not linger. If you have not taken refuge under Jesus, do that this morning. Now our next picture kind of builds off this a little bit. The next picture we come to in our tunnel is these walls of water. Look at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, there's a lot we could say, but I want to focus in on one element of this here. Here we have another picture of how faith, trust, is the difference between salvation and destruction. Both the people of God and the Egyptians, it said, did the same thing, right? It says in our text, when they attempted to do the same, they both walked into the sea. The sea was parted, both groups walked in, but only the people of God who had faith passed through to the other side. I think this is a very helpful picture to us of death. We all walk into the sea of death. We will all die. Every single one of us. But only those who have faith in Jesus Christ pass through the sea and are delivered to the other side. The rest are swallowed up by the waves and destroyed. Here, the choice seemed obvious, right? One hand, if you put yourself in their shoes, you've got the Egyptians hot on your heels and you've got this body of water in front of you that suddenly just inexplicably opens up. And now there are these massive walls of water. I mean, this is a sea. This is not like a stream in your backyard. These are towering walls of water. So on one hand, you think, oh great, a way out. Simple enough. But they still had to walk through the waves. You're walking through these towering waves. We were on vacation. We did a pit stop at the at Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. And we just got a little bit into the water. And this, they were, it was windy that day. So there was like little waves like this. And they about knocked Anna over. Now these are, these are big waves. These are, this is a sea being held back. And you're not just like going a foot or two out into it. You're walking out in the middle of it. You're walking through these waves knowing that if God lets loose, these waves will crush me. They had to trust that as they walked through the waves of death, God would keep holding back destruction until they were on the shores of salvation. This was a moment-by-moment -moment trust. It wasn't simply the moment of a decision to, will I step into it? It was every moment, he's got to hold it. He's going to hold it. He's going to hold it. He's going to hold it all the way through the sea. Faith chooses to trust God even when the path runs through something terrifying and out of our control. There was literally nothing these people could do in the middle of the sea to hold the waves up. They were, it was completely out of their control. They couldn't say, well, okay, let's make form two lines. You guys... It was God or nothing. If God didn't hold it back, they were gone. But they trusted that God would do what he said. And as we live our lives, and as we approach the waves of death, it's completely out of our control. We don't know the timing. We don't know the way. There's nothing we can do in the moment. We have to simply trust in Jesus that he will hold back the waves of death. That he has made a way 
by his death and resurrection for us to pass safely through the waves of death onto the shores of salvation on the other side. That is what faith does. We've got two last pictures that we'll do very briefly. Second to last picture is, uh, we've got a picture of a guy standing on a pile of rubble holding a trumpet. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now this one is just crazy. Not like the others weren't, but Israel's finally able to get into the promised land. The first thing they do is they come to the city of Jericho, this Fort Knox of a city. This thing is a fortress. Like, you're not getting in here. So they gather for the attack, ready to do this. Joshua's probably better at pregame speeches than I am. So he actually gets them fired up. He tells them the battle plan. All right, you guys ready? Yeah! We're going to march around the city one time! Yeah! What did he say? But they do it. They march around the city. They go around once. And they're uh, thinking, okay, that was strange. Oh, and by the way, don't say anything when you march. Priests, you guys blow the trumpets, but the rest of you fellas, shh, not a word. They march around the city and they get home that night and they're kind of talking to each other in their bunks. They're like, that was weird. But I get it. Joshua, he's an astute military mind. He's probably like psyching out the enemy. Tomorrow, oh, tomorrow we get him. So you get tomorrow morning, you're ready to go. What's the the plan today, Joshua? We're going to march around the city one time. Now at this point, you actually have to have a lot of faith. You have to trust that God's plan is powerful and effective even when it makes no sense to you. Because sure, maybe you'll try anything once, but you go back day two. You go day three. You go day four. You go day five. You go day six. Every day you're tempted to think, this is crazy. Nothing is happening. Did you guys see anything happen while we marched around? No, me neither. Nothing seems different. And then comes day seven. You march around the city seven times. You think, okay, what? Maybe we just weren't doing it enough? Like, seriously, what is the plan here? You march around the city seven times. You trust enough that when, after all that, when Joshua gives a signal, you shout your heart out. And walls fall down. Do you know how much faith it took to obey God's word when it seemed to make no sense and it seemed like it was doing absolutely nothing? And not just one time, but day after day after day when they looked like fools to the people inside. Do you know how much faith it took not just to do it their own way and say, look, we're soldiers. We get how battle is won and it's not by marching around. Let's go. They didn't do that. Faith chooses to trust God's word even when we don't understand his ways. When we look at our situation and it seems like God's ways won't do anything or it might even make our situation worse, we trust his word more than our strategies. So where do you need to keep marching this morning? Where is God calling you to keep living in accord with his word that in your own mind you're like, I think there's maybe a better way. Where do you need to keep marching and trust His ways are better. And finally, we come to our last picture. This one also has to do with Jericho. This picture has crumbled walls in it too, but in the midst of the devastation stands one house, and looking out from that door is a woman. Look at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, back up a second. Before Israel did all that crazy marching, they had sent two spies into the city. And the spies came to the house of this woman, Rahab. Now, Rahab is the most unlikely person to be on this list. We understand Abraham and Moses. Yeah, got it. But Rahab, she was an outsider. She's not a Jew. She's a Canaanite. She was part of the enemy. And on top of that, she was a prostitute. So how does a woman like that get on this kind of list of faith? Well, when the soldiers heard that the spies were at her house... They came looking for them. Rahab chose, again, she had a crisis moment. Will I hide them or will I give them over? She chose to hide the spies and protect them. Why would she do that? 
I mean, that's putting herself in harm's way. Well, Rahab had heard about their God and how he'd rescued his people from Egypt and promised them this land. So when the spies came to her house, she told them, the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's like, your God's real. I want, to be, I want him to be my God. And because she trusted in who God is and what he promised his people, she chose to put herself at risk for the sake of loving these spies. Which is right back where we started, isn't it? A faith that works through love that's willing to take risks to serve others. And because she acted by faith, notice it says she didn't perish with everyone around her. Instead, she took refuge in God and his promises. The one house still standing. She didn't have blood over the doorpost, but she did have a crimson cord that she hung out the window. And when they saw that crimson cord, that house was saved and everyone in it. So friends, let's choose by faith to delight ourselves in God over the pleasures of sin and over the treasures of this world. Let's choose to take risks for the sake of loving others. Not take risks to better yourself. Take risks to better someone else. And let's take refuge in the blood of the Lamb and trust that God's rescue will keep us from the waves of death. And let's choose to endure in this path of faith by looking to the reward and seeing him who is invisible. Would you pray with me? Father, there is so much here. I pray that you would take what we've seen and you would impress it upon our hearts. And I pray that you would even, by your Spirit, Help us to see and understand things we didn't have time to talk about. Lord, we long to be people who treasure you. So would you make that a reality in our hearts? God, would you help us to look away from all the, the shiny things of this world? Would we not be ensnared by them? Would we not look for temporary fleeting pleasures, but full and lasting ones? Help us to be a people who are looking to the reward. That we would have our eyes locked on Jesus in the finish line. That like him, we would have our face set like flint. Not to go to Jerusalem and die like he did, but to go to the new Jerusalem and live with him forever. God, make us this kind of people. Fill us with real faith. Real saving faith that cherishes Christ above all things. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.